0: Somebody that I have really, really enjoyed watching and following along is Dr. Max Golhain down in Australia. He talks about the regenerative agriculture, but he connects it to a way uh, with health that is really easy to understand. And so I've invited him on the Sewing Prosperity podcast to kind of give us his views. And uh, it was more than I was expecting. So welcome, Dr. Max Golhain. Welcome to the Sewing Prosperity Podcast with host Logan Duvall. This father of four is an Arkansas successful small business owner whose world was turned upside down with the cancer diagnosis of his then five-year-old son. As Napoleon Hill famously stated, every adversity, every failure, every heartbreak carries with it the seed of an equivalent or greater benefit. Come and join us on our journey to create a Blue Zone community with a focus on a holistic approach to anti-cancer, regenerative farming, and strengthening local economies. Dr. Max Golhain thank you so much for uh, joining brother I've been following you for a while uh, from uh, you know a mutual friend uh, Tristan Scott and uh, just love what you're doing um, and you're you're in Australia I think that's super cool. it's on my bucket list to, to visit but uh, if you will tell me tell me like who you are and uh, how you got into medicine especially this slant on medicine.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me, Logan. Great to be here. So I'm a family medicine uh, registrar. So I'm an MD who is training to be a a family medicine doctor. And I arrived at more holistic approaches to health after having my own brush with with medical system and not really finding answers. And uh, to cut a a long story short, essentially I developed some bad acne in my early 20s when most of other kids had kind of well and truly finished that problem um in their teenage years and i went through just the, a, a routine of different uh, topical treatments so um, pastes and creams and then pills and oral antibiotics and you know e- even more heavier th- treatment therapies um, until I got to one called isotretinoin or Roaccutane. And that's – your listeners might kind of recognize a kid that gets put on this medication because they, they, their lips are really chapped and their skin's very – Dry. They're always putting moisturizer on, and they're avoiding the sun. Uh, it works. It works very well, but it's it's a sledgehammer of a drug, and um, and I eventually stopped it because because of uh, side effects, particularly mood side effects. So um, at the at the whole time this is going on, I was in medical school, uh, interested in in health and, and biology and science, and nothing that I was being told had any pertinence or relevance or education about um, lifestyle treatment, um, and. Uh, I was essentially experimenting, and I even went down a plant-based eating approach to see if that might help. Uh, It didn't. The acne got worse, along with uh, uh, some other other symptoms. So it it all culminated in this um, like individual journey. Um, So I I found uh, a a repository of, of very good kind of education uh, called Low Carb Down Under, and that was doctors talking about carb restriction, mostly for diabetics and obese people and people with fatty liver disease. And it's just just very effective ways of helping to uh, reverse these chronic metabolic conditions that everyone in society seems to inevitably accumulate. And, um, and maybe we could talk about that as well, but it, the, the way the dietary setup set up and the way the environment is set up is that people almost to a T accumulate visceral fat. They accumulate um, health problems and that's normal and it's normalized. And the whole environment and the whole structure that we exist in is kind of fast tracking people towards that, um, that, that end point. So I eventually you know i asked my own questions i educated myself you know in i like to call it a, a parallel decentralized medical curriculum which is simply you know youtube.com um because there's so much great information of very intelligent people out there and uh, eventually what i did was um, after working for a couple of years in the emergency department and in hospital i started my general practice training and have implemented these lifestyle type approaches to to help my patients and part of my lifestyle approach or, or the, I guess there's three kind of facets to it um, as it stands at the moment. And we can, again, we can de- delve into these, but um, circadian health and basically making sure that our body is aligned with the, the solar day in terms of correct light signals and ancestral eating. And I, and I, I use that term kind of broadly to include uh, carnivore type diets, low carb, seasonal um, eating. Uh, and regenerative farming, and and I think that the regenerative farming is is key for a number of reasons. But uh, essentially, if if I'm advocating for people to eat a lot of meat, I, I want them to be eating the most ethically raised, the most high quality, the most nutrient dense, um, locally sourced. Uh, meat that um, can that, that that they're using to fuel their bodies. So that that's basically a, a kind of a, a summary of my my current approach and 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 what I use to kind of heal my or help heal my patients and and anyone who's who's interested. And um, I, I did mention earlier that it was actually a carnivore type diet that eventually cured, well, low carb that cured my my acne. Um, so th- this whole learning process for me as an individual was very um, enlightening and and waking up because it taught me that the solutions to my problems and um, my patient's problems weren't lying in the textbook or the medical curriculum that, you know, I was supposed to be taught. I mean, imagine if a a, a mechanic um, came out of his apprenticeship and um, by by the time they finished um, dealing with your car, the car's bumper was kind of falling off and there was smoke coming out of the engine. I mean, what kind of, what kind of mechanic education would that be? And, and then not to cast shade on very effective parts of medicine, which is emergency medicine, which I was working in. And if you have an acute issue, acute um, medical emergency, anaphylaxis, acute myocardial infarction, you know, multi-vehicle trauma, there's one place you want to be. But what we're not doing properly and not doing right is this chronic and lifestyle diseases and you know there, there's a strong case that um, the, the treatment is often making things worse especially when it means you know using very heavy medications with side effects at the same t- time as not telling people hey make these simple lifestyle changes and and you can heal yourself so that is kind of my personal journey and and where i'm at uh, at the moment and, and and i've got a podcast similar like like you do called regenerative health and it's also part of this um, attempt to help people beyond just the clinic room and i'm limited in my time with, with individuals but if, if we can put out the message through podcast form through educational content then it's a way of scaling in, in a way that i think is going to be how we um move the needle um in, in, in a big way
0: i love that and i think that's probably my biggest uh you know, joy with the podcast is I get to talk to incredible people and go kind of the direct to the source of, of their experience, and uh, it's, it's been really enlightening uh, to have that that opportunity. Um, so let's start with the the farming and the agriculture and the carnivore aspects of it because I think that is so important. But then. You know, as you dive into it, the reasons that's important get really scientific. Like, you know, I talked to Dr. Laszlo Boris yesterday, actually. And so trying to understand why carnivore is working in a way that very few talk about it, especially none of the big carnivore influencers out there. So uh, yeah. why why that regenerative why the carnivore or at least meat based uh and then why local uh because I think that's the other nuance there that uh goes way deeper and is very
1: very important. Yeah, the 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 thing about regenerative farming and I've actually put together a list of 10 uh, points, and I'll, I'll quickly say them, and then we can, uh, if you want me to expand on any of them. But essentially, th- these are the 10 reasons why I found that regenerative farming specifically needs to be the way forward um, animal ethics, uh, and that's particularly to do with um, the fact that the cow has one bad day, which is the day that they get slaughtered, and the rest of the time they're, you know, on pasture enjoying themselves environmentalism and this is to do with land regeneration local um, environmentalism and um, soil regeneration water um, retention you know the real type of environmentalism that is not disconnected um you know not abstract concepts about um that the, the mainstream narratives are filled with taste and and i think fully grass fed beef tastes amazing and that's not that's my opinion but that's a lot of other people's opinion nutritional quality um, purity or absence of, of contaminating chemicals and that that's includes man-made uh, herbicides especially if they're if the animals being grass-fed cost um, which is to do with buying in bulk which you do when when you buy meat in bulk transparency and and that relationship that you the transparency that you get with a relationship of, of knowing your farmer food security so being able to preserve your access to fully grass-fed beef, um, and that that key human nutrition, um, you can't beat it if you if you source it from your farmer. Um, economic empowerment, and I know in, in the US, you know uh, the the industrialization of your agricultural system has decimated that um, that a lot of rural communities. And, and I talked to Texas Slim about that. And um, so economic empowerment is about helping people get that. Um, the economic value back into r- rural areas to help um, people in those areas, um, and animal husbandry. And I have a, a particular interest in a particular uh, beef cattle called the Anguni. And when you source regeneratively, you often able to help or or directly facilitate um, the, the those particular. Breeds or, or whatever unique breed that your farmer is using. So th- that that's kind of the ten reasons why I think, um, or that I think about why I advocate it for it. Um, from from a, a locality point of view, that we can go into the the basically the, the the nuances, but essentially one of the root causes of the the decimation of the food supply and the fact that people have become so metabolically sick is that they're disconnected. And not viscerally and emotionally, but also geographically, um, p- potentially, f- particularly from their food. So whenever we're sourcing food outside a you know 50, 100 kilometer radius from where we live, it's inevitably going to be packaged. It's it's going to be highly refined. It's going to be and um, unhealthy. So using a simple heuristic like source locally is the I think it's the top of my list of my kind of food rules because. When you when you simply do that one point, you solve for all the kind of downstream points, which is um, uh, seasonal appropriateness and, and and the fact that it's it, it can't be highly processed unless you live next to a you know a, a Mars bar factory. But um, what what um, it can be taken all the way down to this idea. So from from a circadian health point of view, we have seasonal changes in our in In our nutrient requirements, and what I mean by that is that there's a seasonal availability of nutrients that naturally occurs unless we're living on the equator so you're living in arkansas um you know if i'm down in in albury in in 36th latitude in australia then the winter the food availability of the winter is going to be different in the summer so what what happens is if we eat the same diet um which is a processed food diet or even eating uh fruits that were grown and imported at, at a different location then we're sending a, a confusing message to our, our, our biology and our circadian biology and um, our infraradian biology by the fact that there's a mismatch between the, the food that we're consuming and the environment that that we're in and what what this means is that it eventually it's going to contribute to to putting on visceral fat and developing diabetes because and um, th- there's there's fundamentally your body is not expecting that degree of fruit or carbohydrate or fructose um if it's you know 10, degree, 10 degrees Celsius outside. So um, th- there's this, this mismatch, that, which means that um, ancestrally, if you're living in a cold environment, then you're predominantly supposed to be ketogenic during that time. Because the only thing that that's going to be growing might be some root vegetables, but it's essentially, it's going to be meat. It's going to be animals. It's going to be ruminant herbivores that uh, can survive in in cold climates. So that that should should make up the bulk of the diet because that's what's available at that time. So so the seasonality component um, and and I know you you just recently talked to Doctor Jack Cruz and he will tell you that it goes even deeper than that and um, the the food electrons carry photosynthetic information um, uh, about the area which the food was grown in. Um, that that's another kind of very complex way of looking at it but it's not really necessary in my mind or all, all, all you people need really need to know is that the, the most locally grown food is going to be the best for you uh, from a health point of view and for those other kind of reasons that i, that I mentioned
0: i love that i love how you broke down the the points it's definitely been uh our experience on on all that you know we've gone down uh and visited with will harris at white oak pastures and filmed a little documentary there and and they. Uh, Exact opposite of what the industrial model's doing is going on there. You know, things are actually growing. There, there's life, and uh, it's beautiful to see that. So, from a uh, Australian perspective, how how do y'all view our uh, food system and and uh, what's going on?
1: Yeah, it, I I think it's it's all downstream of what has happened in the U.S. and uh, everywhere around the world is essentially copied. I copied you guys, and re- really, it goes far back as the early eighteen, 18- the late eighteen hundreds, with the Seventh Day Adventists. And I have um, talked to Belinda Fetke, who's done a, a, a quite an amazing research on the history of the dietary guidelines and, and where we got to. And Texas Slim has talked about this. And I've recently interviewed um, uh, an author of a book called Fiat Food, and his name is Matthew Lisack. And essentially. There's a couple of key checkpoints along the way that that got us to this industrialized food system, and a couple of them include the, the Seventh-day Adventist uh, religious group who have a, a religious ideology advocating for a vegan and plant-based diet. And the, people might know John Harvey Kellogg because he, into, he, he essentially um, invented cornflakes for the sole reason of... Um, basically dampening down libido because w- what they saw as a religious imperative was to stop people from masturbating, um, what they called self-pollution. And, and and they believed that that was going to prevent um, people from sa- th- their religious uh salvation. So not only did they want their members to stop masturbating, they needed everyone else to stop masturbating. So John L. Harvey Kellogg invented cornflakes. Uh, they pushed out all these bland foods that contain no cholesterol no animal derived nutrients because they were correct in connecting the fact that if you eat a high quality nutrient dense uh, diet rich in 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 ruminant meat and eggs and full fat dairy then you are going to have a libido because you are healthy <laughs> because you have all the biochemical precursors to synthesize testosterone estrogen progesterone uh, and, and every, pregnenolone everything that you need to to thrive and and therefore reproduce so uh, they, they were correct, and the, the the reason why this is significant is because the Seventh Day Adventists became the American Dietetics Association. The te- American Dietetics Association is um, was and continues to be uh, an a branch and outbranching of uh, a religious group, and under the cover of impartiality, they have pushed their religious plant based um, agenda and and ideology. So. Fast forward um, to the early 1910s and, and seed oil started getting introduced into the food supply. And p- basically, Procter & Gamble had a whole bunch of cotton seeds they wanted to get rid of, and they repurposed this industrial waste, um, sold it as vegetable shortening, marketed it to housewives as uh, superior to pork lard, um, and that was the beginning of uh, seed oils into the food supply. The soy in- the soy industry came along too, and again, they were favoured by the Seventh-day Adventists. Um, and and then around the fifties, Eisenhower had a heart attack. They there's a gent called uh, Ansel Keys who you might be aware of, who um, was a physiologist but had um, was hell bent on on a hypothesis. And he in in science we the way science uh, is uh, performed to a gold standard is you have a hypothesis and you attempt to disprove it. And what you're left with is uh, you know you you slowly kind of getting closer and closer to the truth by disproving your different hypotheses. His hypothesis was that animal fat uh, raised serum cholesterol um, and that serum cholesterol um, would uh, contribute to the development of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. He didn't try and disprove this hypothesis. He simply tried to and and did cherry pick evidence to support that belief. So around the 50s, and, and early sixties, the animal fat and and red meat started getting attacked uh, as a cause of, of cardiovascular disease. Not to mention the the what I believe are the true underlying causes at the same time, which was a massive increase in seed oil consumption, uh, smoking. There was lead uh, pollution in terms of cars. So there are all these other factors that were um, probably were the true underlying causes and had nothing to do with with these ancestral foods. So and um, around the, by the time. Um, and then, and then the next thing that really happened that Matthew Lissak talks about is that the, the US came off the gold standard. And when Nixon took the US off the gold standard, uh, inflation rose precipitously. Everything in the economy went up in, in price. Um, and to essentially obfuscate the, um, particularly meat, and to obfuscate the effect of inflation on the population, uh, they essentially uh, ordered a consolidation of, of the food supply and essentially the planting and subsidization of uh, corn and all these, these cheap corn commodities. So and, and there was a massive explosion of, of corn and the need to develop uh, corn processed food products like high fructose corn syrup uh, as, as a result of that. And then by, by the 19, late 1970s and early 80s, th- this was essentially um, this low-fat, uh, high-carb, uh, anti-animal foods paradigm was basically enshrined in uh, the U.S. dietary guidelines. First ninety-seven was the McGovern report, which was written by Seventh Day Adventist, uh, who has had obviously a uh, a conflict, religious and ideological conflict of interest. And then, and by the I believe it was nineteen eighty was the first official U.S. dietary guidelines, which was um, you know grains, 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 and more grains. So. Uh, I, I guess I wanted to give that historical background to the listener because what we're dealing with today in terms of two thirds of Australian adults being obese or overweight, and a, and a quarter of Australian children being obese or overweight, is that we took uh, the lead from your country um, in terms of recommending this high carb diet, and and unlike you guys, we we haven't as 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 um, far gone down the genetically modified route, and we don't. Uh, I believe we don't spray as much. Um, glyphosate as you do but we still spray a a fair bit but it's all um all these are the downstream consequences of uh of basically policies that have nothing to do with optimal health and i kind of made that in point in a recent reel which was um there's a none of the recommendations that people are advised um with regard to official dietary eating has to do with health optimization it's their legacy policies as i mentioned of religious ideology of 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 the grain lobby or processed food industries, so it's all it's all um, quite assorted uh, legacy of, of, of those. So and and I guess the the kind of and we can talk about the evidence for for carnivore, but essentially what I see when I put patients on a carnivore type diet is that it, their metabolic problems go away, their autoimmune problems go away, um, their energy levels improve, their inflammation goes away. So it, it speaks to the appropriate or the ancestral appropriateness and, and the, the cause of their symptoms. If, if you remove them and, and put them back on, on this meat based diet, they, they improve. So, and I hope that was, that answered your question in a, in a roundabout way. No, it did. And I'm just kind of uh, in amazed
0: because you you just went through um, history that I, I have come to find that you're spot on with absolutely everything you just said. Most, if, if not any uh, really uh, understand that understand what you just said and how corrupt and misguided our food system is and the dietary approach it's uh it's it's frustrating honestly when i sit uh, across from an oncologist and they tell me food doesn't matter and the studies that they say don't exist exist and the studies they try to point to are so flawed from keys or kellogg and i think if anybody understood the experiments Kellogg did, they would be utterly disgusted and they would never even look at a box of uh, Kellogg cereal. Uh, Cause it, it, it's, it's, yeah, was a pervert. He was a pervert. He, he was a pervert. Yeah. I, I mean, it, it's disgusting. The history of all that. And then how, how absolutely misguided the, the saturated fat nonsense is, but, for right or wrong, I think that that's uh, part of the path, right? It's part of the journey of this uh, awakening. And I feel like, uh, and we talked about this before we got on there and, and about Tristan, I think that our generation is kind of fed up with the uh, approach, the, the status quo. I know for me, with my son having cancer and then going down all those rabbit trails, it's messed up. And I don't want anybody else to have to go through that. And so... Uh, what is your experience on cancer and carnivore um, and meat and cancer?
1: Yeah, and, and you you mentioned recently that you'd interviewed Dr. Laszlo Boris, and that's actually a, a really great place to to kind of pick that thread up. So what what um, I guess there, there's there's many ways of thinking about cancer, but essentially cancer and to to really simplistically um, break it down it's a disease of a, of a of the cell where it, it the cell keeps reproducing so it doesn't it doesn't stop reproducing and and it, it can be very complex and it's been studied from many different angles but what what we know now and this data is really coming from a decentralized um, scientific point of view and maybe we can talk about the difference between centralization and decentralization as it applies to science and medicine but essentially when we look at the mitochondria, and and for the listeners who um, aren't scientifically based, th- think about your body as a, as as a, um, a massive accumulation of different cells. And in in your organs, in your heart, uh, you have different cells. You have cells that are good at contracting and pulling together, so that you they can pump your heart. In your brain, you have cells called neurons that are really good at transmitting electrical signals, so you can to power your brain. And in your Pancreas, you have cells that are really good at making insulin hormones so that they can uh, send that hormone out. So, in all your all all these cells, they have tiny little, um, basically, bacteria, ancient ancestral bacteria inside them that um, make energy or that that help their energy. The cell make energy. These are called mitochondria, plural mitochondria. What happens is that um, they, without them, the cell can't operate because the cell needs a source of energy to operate, to contract, to make that hormone, to do all the the, the things that it needs to do. So when these mitochondria stop, the mitochondria stop working, then the cell starts failing. And um, you know, to to, to give another an, an analogy, uh, just imagine if your if your if your cell is like a a a, a power plant that burns lumber, and you've inside the warehouse you've got maybe um, you know 15 furnaces and the furnace is like the mitochondrion and you have to put you have to put fuel into the mitochondrion to make energy so that the, the the factory can work and that's your cell when the when the furnaces start turning offline so you go from you know 15 furnaces working to you know six furnaces working then the ability for the cell to operate will stop stops working so the heart muscle won't contract as well the 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 cell that's making the horm- insulin hormone won't won't make ho- the hormones properly. So when the mitochondria fail, the the cell fails. So cancer um, and and the work of Dr. Thomas Seafried is is kind of very uh, pivotal in 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 kind of showing this. Cancer is what we what's called a, a metabolic mitochondrial disease. So when the mitochondria stop working, then it will fail. Then the cell starts um starts malfunctioning and cancer is just one of those diseases that can occur and the other diseases include things like um, obesity diabetes which is the downstream effect of of, of metabolic dysfunction insulin resistance um and neurodegenerative diseases like alzheimer's and parkinson's autoimmune disease they're all all of these have a common uh, origin in the fact that 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 they represent failure of, of the mitochondria um, and and if it happens in one organ particularly then you you get that that disease so what he sh- what dr Seafried shows is that um when you uh when you can if you put broken mitochondria into a healthy cell then the cell will you still have a problem but if you if you put healthy mitochondria in that broken cell you can rescue the cell so the mitochondria are everything and um what 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 this why this is relevant to cancer is big be- and meat is because what we want to do is help the, the the health of those mitochondria as much as possible. And one of the things that um, breaks them and contributes to their dysfunction is that that compound called deuterium. Uh, it's essentially a heavy isotope of hydrogen. Not to get too, too complex, but what happens is meat is very, very low in this heavy isotope of hydrogen. So when you're eating a carnivore or very low-carb, uh, Diet, you're getting a very very low dose of deuterium, and you're helping your mitochondria function as optimally as possible. Conversely, if you're eating the seed oils, the soy oil, the corn oil, the um, you know the Walmart um, buffet standard, then that diet is going to be very rich in deuterium. It's obviously going to be rich in refined sugar as well, and carbs, and seed oils. So um, the deuterium is is like very very harmful to those mitochondria and those energy producing. Cells. So when we eat uh, a carnivore type diet, we are essentially eating a deuterium depleted diet. And that is the most conducive to helping um, our mitochondrial function. So, what does this look like? Well, groups, um, the collaborators of Dr. Laszlo Boris in Hungary, have used a deuterium depleted diet to treat cancer um, for well over 10 to 15 years now and there's a group in another group in hungary called paleo medicina who have done similar things and they use a very very low carbohydrate zero carbohydrate high animal fat uh carnival diet um and getting similar results so at this point there's just a a growing accumulation of of anecdotal evidence of the the benefit and and this disease-free um survival and just more and more time of, of people who are maintaining um, themselves without cancer uh, on on a very very low carb diet. So the, the, the way to think about it is um, deuterium depleted diet is going to be the best to help those failing mitochondria and carnivore or high fat carnivore is um, you know one way of implementing that low deuterium diet. Yeah, I
0: think Gabor uh, Somalier's book is uh, extremely uh, worth reading. I think everybody, especially if you have a cancer connection, you need to understand that. So deuterium is something that uh, we just simply don't uh, talk about. And I don't know anybody uh, in, in the realm of cancer as far as around here that ha- is, even has that on their radar. And uh, it's kind of terrifying when you look at how positive going down that route is working and we're not, so it it scares me a little bit on what's actually going on there. What what uh, I'd like to, to hear from you is what have you found to strengthen mitochondria? Um, because you know, I think uh, Dr. Chris Palmer has done a phenomenal job with uh, brain energy in in his book on the psychi- psychiatric issues, the the brain issues that uh, we can have based off of uh, poor mitochondrial function. So, what can we do to
1: boost? Uh, you know, uh, mitochondria. Yeah, that, that that's a great question. And if if we're putting mitochondria at the center of disease, and and that's what it is, it's it's the center of what's known as uh, Dr. Doug Wallace, who's a pioneer in this field, calls it um, the mitochondrial bioenergetic etiology of disease. So, if we're holding that um, the mitochondrial dysfunction is at the root of, of of what we're seeing from a chronic disease point of view, then you're asking the million dollar question, which is uh, how what can we do to and maximize and optimize the function of the mitochondria and the the answer to your question to this question it's also uh in explains why um, it isn't more, more widely implemented and everything that optimizes mitochondrial function can't isn't monetizable <laughs> and and I'll, and i'll go through them um, in, in in turn so uh, sunlight sunlight is a key way of optimizing mitochondrial function on on a whole bunch of levels so a uh, re- re- regulated circadian biology this idea that we run on a 24 hour clock our brain runs uh, runs our whole body based on the 24 hour clock every organ in our body has a 24 as a roughly 24 hour clock and we need to sync that clock constantly with the the sun so when you have a natural a naturally aligned circadian rhythm which is complete bright sunlight during the day um and a complete absence of light at night then your body is going to optimize its uh, its ability to clear out dead and damaged uh, mitochondria and dead and damaged cells. So the regulation of this kind of cellular garbage cleaning is uh, is circadian biology and is those those proper light signals. So one of the, the the hormones that your 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 listeners might know about is melatonin, and you know most people are. Most people know about it because they take it as a gummy supplement because they're on their iPads till um 11 p.m. every night. But you make melatonin in your pineal gland uh, e- every night as long as you don't see blue light, blue wavelength light, because that is a daytime, midday signal that turns off that that key hormone. W- what melatonin is doing is helping regulate um, what's known as apoptosis and uh, autophagy, which um, again is that this this idea of um, cellular garbage cleaning to make sure that those dead, diseased, or or, or cells that are about to become cancer um, get cleaned up by the immune system. So if we're uh, if we have a dis- disrupted circadian rhythm, then that process isn't going to go ahead properly. So um, mitochondria need melatonin, and, and in fact, it's not only during nighttime where you you make melatonin; you're actually making it in the mitochondria during the day uh, on exposure to. Uh, near infrared light, so that is why being outside, even with 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 a shirt on, is okay because the the infrared light penetrates through your shirt, and it's fine. But you need to be getting out there, otherwise you're not giving your cell, your your mitochondria and your cells, uh, you know, key key um, factors and nutrients and signals. So sunlight is. Let, is possibly let me ask the- a question real
0: quick before you get into that, mm. Max. Because uh, something I want to try to understand is how can I better get my kids? I, so I have four of them, but the oldest one is the one that had cancer. How do I get him in the sun more, or how do I get the biggest benefit based off what he's wearing when it's cold? I, I think that's a you know a reasonable question. Most people that I've talked to about this have is well it's cold how am i supposed to get sunlight um so what what's what's your say on that and then please go back into how we boost mitochondria
1: yeah so so certain fabrics um allow penetration of of uh near infrared light better than others so that just the looser weave clothing will, will allow that to come through and even if it's winter you're still getting infrared infrared light so uh that that is a a key point uh if it's very cold um and it's winter then this also speaks to this circadian uh, need to embrace changes and seasonal changes in, in temperature and, and have variation in in temperature changes because and um, if you are living ancestrally at the latitude that you are and um, you, you you didn't you wouldn't have had a, a climate controlled air conditioner to keep keep you at um, you know twenty four degrees Celsius that that and I'm, I'm, all that to say and um, the gold standard is to is to have some degree of of cold exposure if it's at at a seasonal time. So, I mean, kids, I know everyone's, you know, some parents can be very uh, careful or concerned that their kid might catch a cold, but... Doing allowing the kid to you know maybe go outside with a t shirt for a, a small amount during the day or play outside and and not be as as much as a helicopter parent um, is probably going to be in the, the kid's best interest. And so not only will they be able to harvest a bit of near infrared light, but they'll also be able to get um, a bit of cold exposure, which is is beneficial. Um, again, and we can talk about that from a mitochondrial point of view. So, I mean, maybe that's a good way to to pick to pick up the 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 thread, which is cold optimizes mitochondrial function. And and essentially, mitochondria were the reason, or mutations in mitochondria were the reason why we're able to survive outside of Africa when we move north into Europe. And what those mutations allowed um, particularly was a way of uncoupling... The energy production of that of that factory of that of that furnace to just generate heat. And another analogy to use for for your listeners is, um, you know, some vehicles have a prop shaft where you can plug in um farm equipment at the front at the front of the the vehicle, so you can rev the engine and turn the prop shaft, but the car's not moving. So if you think about what what um the mitochondria can do in brown fat, which is this this fat that exists, you know, up up around our bones is that if we're cold exposed or cold adapted, we we have this brown fat tissue that simply runs that 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 uh, accelerator and turns the prop shaft and just outputs heat. So so that is called non uh, non shivering thermogenesis, and that is one way that the mitochondria um, helps to to essentially keep us warm. But that process of of getting cold. Is is very very much optimised as mitochondrial function. So if we're talking about cancer and we're talking about and um, decentralised non pharmaceutical ways of of aiding in cancer um, therapy, then cold exposure is one of those, and it's it's something that's increasingly being recognised. And, and And maybe you could talk to Thomas Seeger, who I interviewed recently, uh, who has had an amazing uh, experience with a with a patient or a friend of his who had. Lymphoma and leukemia, and essentially swam. Sw- I don't know which river it was, but he swam in a freezing river for three weeks, and he came back. and His his treating oncologist or hematologist. Uh, did a repeat scanned him and saw no disease, and uh, you know said to him, "If I hadn't made the, the diagnosis of you originally, then I wouldn't have believed you'd ever had it." So, um, cold is incredibly powerful um, on a, from a mitochondrial point of view, um, and it, it essentially it can it can shrink the distance between those respiratory complexes on your in your mitochondria, so it it increases the efficiency of of energy transfer in your mitochondria. So we've talked about sunlight, um, we've talked about cold. Uh, low-carb or carnivore, and and that is because of uh, the the fact that deuterium they are deuterium depleted diets, um, and ketone um, metabolism metabolism is more favorable to to mitochondrial function, and and um, the the fats the saturated animal fats essentially allow your mitochondria to make more water, and not to to go in too much depth is that um, water is a is a byproduct of of the Enzymatic steps that happen inside those mitochondria, um, and when things go wrong, if we don't have the right uh, substrates or building blocks, if the engine's inefficient, then that water production process is impaired, and um, you know the mitochondria is, uh, uh, starts failing. So, so we've talked about a sunlight, cold, uh, ketogenic or car- carnivore type diet, uh, and fasting. So, fasting is in- in- incredibly uh, powerful for um, for promoting. Uh, autophagy uh, apoptosis and uh, all these um thing things that promote mitochondrial health so and th- those are kind of the and then obviously exercise so uh, exercise is because the mitochondria are required to make more more energy when when we're physically active so you know there's so many benefits of exercise to to preventing cancer and um uh, and metabolic diseases and everything but uh that in part it's 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 going to definitely optimize uh, mitochondrial function, and and you know the type of exercise you know who, who, it, it matters more that you're doing some, and and I, I wouldn't tell people to um you know to to get on a bike and you know run marathons. I don't think I I more favor intense bursts of very very high intensity exercise followed by rest, but um some form of exercise is is going to be good. So so all, all, all the things that optimize mitochondrial function are. Um, fundamentally free, um, you know, standing on the uh, and gr- grounding is also very, very beneficial. So, um, so, so yeah, they're all free. <laughs> and uh, they can't be, they can't be patented, made money out of, but uh, th- th- that's what works. Get your
0: opinion on something else that I've not heard very many people talk about, especially on the circadian and uh, quantum realms. You know, somebody that has an interest in that is minerals, minerals and uh, electricity or minerals and just uh, enzymatic functions. So, for example, uh, you know, Dr. Cruz talks a whole lot about melanin and, uh, you know, the, the deuterium and hydrogen utilization and, and all these things. But something that never seems to come up is like copper and the copper dependent. In Enzyme, say the pan enzyme, tyranase, just all these, uh, just all kinds of mineral dependent things that are very pertinent to this conversation seem to be omitted on about every conversation. And so what, what is kind of your take on minerals and the lack thereof, uh, versus some of these other takes, say Morley Robbins is, for example, is somebody I talk to regularly that has brought up incredible points but he seems to be like the only one.
1: <laughs> yeah, and my, my my general point or approach is that I think if if we're eating a nutrient dense species appropriate diet, which is rich in in, in animal food, in wild caught seafood, uh, in in uh, you know su- seasonal appropriate. Um, fruit if we're metabolically healthy in in, in a little bit uh, and we're doing everything else right we're getting that sunlight we've built melanin uh, we're exercising you know if we op- we've optimized the nutritional inputs and the lifestyle then and, and we're not you know eating glyphosate contaminated foods or we're not um in a place that has lead contamination or we're not drinking poisoned water then it's my opinion that that, that those things kind of take care of themselves and that the body knows what to do with, with it. Um, if, if, if we've, if we've addressed those underlying factors, um, you know, it's a different story if someone hasn't isn't doing everything else and they've got other problems and they're trying to kind of maintain mineral statuses. And if, if they're working in a depleted situation and the reality of the modern food, food environment is that it's nutrient depleted. Like that is, that, that, that is a, the reality of of the legacy of monocrop monocropping for the past um, however many decades, so uh, I, I think it becomes that that and, and, and you're right in saying that these these minerals and they're, they're essential cofactors, uh, you know, I everything zinc, um, copper, uh, iodine they're all very very important. But I, I would really encourage people to get them from uh, nutrient dense wild caught food sources. If possible, or regenerative, regeneratively farmed, and and I really feel like if you're doing everything like that, then the need for supplementation or the need for direct targeting um, is is not really there in in my mind. That's just my opinion. Um, and again, because we're we really dealing with the more root root kind of cause of the problem. Yeah,
0: I love that. I love the idea of being able to get it from food. I just find it almost uh, impossible based on, at, at least for me, I'm in the middle of monocrop land um, at Tyson and Walmart world, right? Like everything is very convenient and easy and poison right here where I live. And so when you, you know, uh, like Dr. Stephanie Sneff's work with uh, glyphosate, when we look at this uh, glyphosate as this like master chelator that it is, it's, it's pulling us this hash. High- Stress environment—it's pulling our minerals down, and uh, our food system is just completely destroyed. And Morley uh, pointed to a couple uh, experiments they've done on, like, liver and trying to find the mineral content and copper. This is this is on regenerative farm where they did this. No copper in the liver. Now, so like that, you know, that's our primary food source to get, say, say copper, and uh, it just scares me on, on not knowing if it's even possible to get it from our food based on all the different things that we've kind of talked about.
1: Yeah. That, that, that's a, um, yeah, it's a scary thought, isn't it? Uh, I'm, I'm not familiar with that particular study. Um, it, it's, I guess, uh, the, the other thing I would say is I, I try and encourage people to get seafood because the, the oyster or the mussel um, again, just like the egg, it's a whole organism and that is, Going to be a, a great source of those um, bio uh, bioavailable micronutrients. So uh, that that that's for the, that's the reason why I really encourage people to in- include seafood in their carnivore diet. No, not just um, uh, animal animal meat only so that would probably be my best kind of suggestion and 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 kind of a bit of an exception to this local sourcing idea that you know that the value of dha that the polyunsaturated omega-3 is so great and and all those bioavailable trace minerals that as you as you correctly mentioned um are depleted in in this agricultural system then I, i would suggest trying to get some form of of seafood in and especially for pregnant women Wonderful. So what uh, what do you think's next? What's the one
0: thing that we can focus on? Um, is is it that local aspect? Is it the get our food from our neighbors that are regeneratively farming or do that ourselves? Um, and why is that so connected to health? Is <laughs> I, I, I'm trying to find an easy way to get somebody that may not be familiar with all the things we've laid out to, I guess, you know, quote unquote, market it, market the lifestyle for the biggest benefit.
1: Yeah. One analogy that I like to use with my my patients is I say, you know, think back to your great, great grandmother, like so great grandmother and, uh, you know, think about what she ate and they'll look at me and then they'll say, oh yeah, she ate uh, animal fat. She ate full cream butter. I'll say, okay, where did she get her food from? oh you know they, they got it from the neighbor or they had the cow themselves uh, and then i ask, okay what how old did your great grandmother live to and they said oh 95 103 you know it's an, in invariably one of those numbers and uh and i said well you know do, was she afraid of cholesterol and they look at me and they think oh no she wasn't afraid of it at all and and i said well, look that are you just giving yourself the answer like let's keep it simple uh you you just need to do what your great grandmother did you need to um, you know be outside she was outside she was always active she was um, sourcing local food uh, she wasn't counting how much cholesterol was in her eggs or you know restricting the amount of eggs she's eating um, and she was robust so I think the most basic you know way to package the message up is just to give people that um, or invite them to think about what their their recent ancestors were, were doing and and I think that that's in my experience been the easiest way to package it but i i, I do think local is the future and if we if we consider that the, the the problems that we're facing and and the way that we got stuck in this quagmire collectively um they're all to do with industrialization and centralization the 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 that, that's essentially the, the root of the problem and and what what the solution in my my opinion and and you know I've talked to Tristan and we agree is that we need to get back to this decentralized approach because the the further we've gone towards centralized system the more sick everyone's become and the more detached we've become from our food and the more easily you know shareholders can be convinced that it's a good idea to spray a toxic chemical on on a, a field before harvesting it so um you know, you know imagine trying if you're raising food for uh, the local school you know it, pretend it's a local community uh, and and then you 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 have to see the parents of the kids every day and you, you spray poison all over the field and then that 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 wheat gets made into bread and gets fed to you know your child and your child's friends and um, do you think that'd fly of course it, of course it wouldn't but the fact that we're so disconnected and the fact that this whole system's been corporatized that there's enough um degrees of separation that um people are ethically and moral, morally uh absolved of um the the responsibility of of the the harm that that is entailed in these uh, in these opera- operations so i think the localism aspect is it is so important because like i said earlier it really solves for uh, so many so many um co-occurring problems that if we can just get back to uh small scale uh, agricultural systems and um sourcing then we're, we're really doing going to be doing the best thing on so many different levels
0: i Agree wholeheartedly buddy I love it I I I told Tristan uh, the just the other day just like hey I think that this this little group is uh you know going to make a big big impact and so I'm uh just pleased to get to know you brother and uh keep on the good work how can we follow what you're doing and what uh what courses and podcast all that good stuff where where can we send people
1: yeah so i'm operating a a course a optimal circadian health course which is just kind of guiding people through those basics of of how to get maximize their, their healthy sunlight exposures and, and really block block this artificial blue light and we didn't talk too much about it but you know aside from the food things that the really the the blue light is 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 really a, a very big problem so if you go to my website um drmaxgulhane.com then there's just links to to all my kind of uh operations there and 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 i uh, i run the Re- a regenerative health podcast so again talking to regenerative farmers and and medical doctors and health optimizing people and uh, everyone who's kind of moving towards or helping us uh, move towards decentralization of these respective areas. And, um, and yeah, I'm, I'm on Twitter, i Max M Gulhane, MD and Instagram doctor underscore Max Gulhane. But I guess I can give that to you in the, the show notes to share with you listeners.
0: Perfect. Well, you do a great job, my friend, and uh, thank you for uh, all the extra effort of putting it out outside of, you know, the the day-to-day work. You uh, you put in a lot of effort, and uh, it's greatly appreciated, my friend. So, uh, thank you, and uh, we'll talk soon.
1: Yeah, thanks, Logan. Great to talk, mate.
0: Thank you for joining us on Sewing Prosperity. Be sure to follow along across the social media platforms, including YouTube, and be sure to go to sewingprosperity.com.